This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is contacttalkradio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on tunein.com, hang.fm, and upsnap mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in a glass of purple dry. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I'm joined by yet another phenomenal guest. My guest, this one I've been trying to get for over a year, and he was gracious enough to take the time to make this work, so thank you very much. My guest today is a gentleman by the name of James Fadiman, Ph.D., otherwise known as Jim Fadiman. So who is James Jim? Well, Jim began his psychedelic research in the 60s. He has run his own management consulting firm, helped found a commune in New Mexico, and taught in several universities. He co-authored a textbook, now in its seventh edition, a few professional books, a self-help book, and a psychedelic novel. He was the co-founder of the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, now Sophia University. He has been a pioneer in rediscovering the effectiveness of microdoses and is now writing up that research Research and also completing a book about health, healthy multiplicity selves in us all. He is married to a gifted filmmaker and lives in Menlo Park, California. So welcome to my show. How are you, my dear? I'm very well and uh, lovely to hear what an interesting life I've had. It's it's a it's a trip, you know, pun intended here. It's a, it's an absolute trip and. You know, as I always do, I go unscripted, and I was just so particularly jazzed for this interview because this crosses over to another element, and this is me living fearlessly, so I'm going to be connecting with some personal information that not a lot of my followers or listeners necessarily know, uh, but I, back in the day, I, I had fun with my LSD, let me tell you that, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I, it's, it's interesting to me, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun on this show because... Uh, you know, we're a perfect fit for this, Jim. Never mind me being the black sheep of my family. I actually am the psychedelic sheep of my family. So, um, you know, so let's just jump right into it. I, I first of all would like to know the inception of your journey. How did you stumble upon this particular path? And was it, I don't believe in accidents and I, I don't believe in coincidences. So how did this particularly strike up an interest for you in, in terms of taking it to the level that it's become in your life? Well, this this wasn't a stumble at all. I was uh, I finished college, and my um, favorite teacher was a man named Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas, mm-hmm. and I was actually living in Paris, 
writing an extremely bad novel and avoiding the draft, my draft board. And Richard came to Paris on his way to Copenhagen, where he and Tim Leary and Aldous Huxley were mm -hmm. to describe some very, very early psychedelic research for the first time to an international psychology conference. But he came to visit his favorite undergraduate and told me that the greatest thing in the world had happened to him. That was fine. And that he wanted to share it with me. And I thought, okay, whatever that is. <laughs> and he reached into his uh, breast pocket and came out with a little bottle of pills. And I thought, what on earth is going on? I was sufficiently um, undrugged, shall we say, that uh, I didn't drink coffee. <laughs> so I did take some psilocybin, however, that night. And uh, we're sitting out in a little cafe in Paris. And the colors are getting very bright, <laughs> and I'm I'm aware that I'm I'm very aware of and of all the conversations of people you know walking behind me, and then I realize that my French isn't that good. I've never been able to do that, uh -huh. so I freaked a little bit and said, I think we need to get to a quieter place. This is too much for me. And uh, Richard said, it's too much for me too. I said, well, you didn't take any of these pills. He said, no, no, this is just my first time I've ever been to Paris. <laughs> so we retreated to my fifth floor walk-up, and um, my life probably changed from that evening where I had the first realization that there was more to the world than I had been taught um, or that was generally accepted. Mm -hmm. So that in a, in a nutshell, nutshell is, is how I began to... Um, shift away from conventionality. Well, let's get into this and make this exceptionally clear for the listeners. So this isn't me just talking to some uh, supposed drug head. This isn't necessarily endorsing drugs. This isn't. This is a very educated man. Uh, again, PhD. This is somebody who you know has been a part of Harvard. Uh, all the reputable. Um, Institutes has been parts of research studies, has facilitated groups, has worked with cohorts of brilliant-minded genius people, uh, I would say is even one himself. So, you know, let's talk a little bit and get away from the stereotypical of how when we talk about LSD, we talk about drugs, you know, people think about unicorns, they think about rainbows, and, and you know, people think it's a, a certain demographic of people who are aimless in their life, they have no direction, uh, that it's a wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I was able to stand it up till then. Okay. But, uh, your your uh, listeners actually may be uh, far more like you than you may have thought. And just let me give you a figure. This is from the U.S. government, which is since LSD was made illegal, we're only talking about LSD and there are other psychedelics, mm -hmm. and we're only going to talk about the United States, which is a very small part of the world. Yeah. Uh, in that country, 26 million people have taken LSD since it became illegal. Wow. So that includes an enormous part of um, the educated half of the United States. Again, mm -hmm. if we looked at that in terms just of percentage of people in the top 50% of education who've taken LSD, it's quite high. Right. So we're talking about a large group of people over a great many years, and uh, the culture has not become um, a hippie enclave of peace-loving, environmentally friendly, 
uh, racially kind and um, just people. So not only has LSD become as widely available and still is, it did not affect the culture as the 60s hippies hoped it would. Okay. Okay, well, I'm back. Okay, well, thank you for being back, and I want to thank you for reining me in on that and making some some clarifications and some distinctions there because you're, you could be completely right on that in terms of the listening audience. Um, so, yeah, not to undermine or underestimate anybody here who might be plugged in. Uh, but, you know, the, the other portion of the demographic for people who don't endorse this, who everything is evil, and, you know, so I'm kind of speaking to that mindset and hoping that people can open up their minds a little bit and be receptive to in fact, just hearing a different perspective. So, you know, when we when we hear and are told by the establishment or by psychotherapists or, you know, people who work in that particular uh, vocation, that drugs are a form of escape, escapism and that being expressed through perhaps negative connotations, how do you counter that ideal or statement or judgment or philosophy, Jim? Well, the, the question... Um are you escaping into more, or usually escaping means into less. Mm-hmm. Um, people who take heroin will tell you that the thing they get most out of it is that nothing bothers them. They go numb. And mm-hmm. if your life is bad enough, that's pretty good. What people who take psychedelics will tell you, that their life is more, that there's more variety, there's more levels, there's uh, more interaction, and also... Um, they will tell you that they are kinder, that they have become nicer people. Um, I was talking to a a group of several hundred students at UC Santa Cruz a few years ago and asked them to fill out some forms about what drugs they'd taken. The answer was many. And what situations? The answer was many. But what came out of it and what number of students said, said, I originally just took it for fun and exploration and so forth. But of, over the time that I've been taking psychedelics, I notice that I'm, I'm now socially more comfortable, I'm a better student, and I care more about human beings. And that seemed to be almost a developmental sequence. Now, that might also occur just by going to college, uh, but they, they felt that their psychedelic use was responsible. So it has a lot of implications quite apart from um, the idea that it is um, escaping from something. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, like any experience that we use as an escape, and let's say a vacation, an Mm -hmm. escape, um, we come back. And the question is, do we come back improved or do we come back damaged? Mm -hmm. And the... The results with psychedelics, this again is a study using um, U.S. government statistics over now millions of people, is that people who have had psychedelics are less likely to have mental illness. If we go to the prison population, they are less likely to return to prison and so forth. So it looks like, and this was certainly something we didn't anticipate, that it seems to be, in almost all cases, um, beneficial. Now, can it be misused? Can people be injured? Of course. Mm -hmm. And if you've driven a car lately, you understand how being in touch with something strong and powerful can either be helpful or harmful. 
And in any case, you have to pay attention and know what you're doing. So the same rules apply when you're working with your own consciousness. Absolutely. Well, we understand that the meaning for the Greek meaning for psychedelic is mind revealing. So can we explore a little bit, Jim, what your mind has revealed to you? <laughs> oh, my mind has revealed to me that there's a lot, um, basically people are a lot better than we think. Yes. And that um, we, are, we are part of a network of living things that once you, you get it, um, it's incredibly obvious. The idea that we can be separate from each other, from nature, etc., um, becomes silly. And one of the, the curious things in the 60s, among the things that psychedelics helped generate, was the women's movement, was the ecology movement, uh, and was racial justice. And all of these are based on that other people are not only uh, as worthy as you, but are in a very direct way part of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you've also indicated that, you know, psychedelics usually give you what you need as opposed to what you want. So I'd be interested to know if you could break that down for myself and the listeners. What does that actually mean to you and if you can contrast the difference? Sure. Uh, One of the questions when I've worked with people, and this is in a clinical setting where you have as safe and secure a setting as possible and you have time before and after, you say to people, what are your goals? What do you really want? And what questions do you want answered? Mm-hmm. And we literally would ask people to come in with a list of questions. And we let them know the questions can be at any level, from why is it that I've never liked my stepmother to um, what is the nature of God? Mm-hmm. And this was very, very common. Um, at the end of a uh, high dose, where there's a lot of um, awareness of the interrelatedness of all things and, and some beautiful events, people would, at near the end of the afternoon, we would give them their list. And most of them would look at their list and either literally with a pencil make little check marks or just look at the list and laugh and indicate, yes, they had answers to all those questions, but those questions now were less interesting than they had been before. Mm. Now, why would that be so? Well, what people learn is that personality, uh, let me say my Jim Fadimanness, is not my, uh, it's not all that I am, mm-hmm. uh, that I'm actually larger than that, and that my personality is a subsystem, and that the subsystem gets a lot of extra importance because it says it's the most important thing there is. Mm-hmm. But really, if you look at it, look at, say, a neurosis, and you say, well, this is who I am, I'm a neurotic person, you pay a lot of attention to that. But if you say, this neurosis, which came from past events, is a little bit like, um, like a stain on my shirt from spilling a little coffee mm-hmm. and I can either get very excited and say I am my shirt and I'm damaged now or I can say this is just a shirt right. it can be laundered or it can be given away Absolutely. so I, Jim Fadiman, becomes somewhat less important and mm-hmm. that's a great relief 
Lovely. I love that descriptor. So, you know, I'd be interested to know, I'd be interested to know your personal beliefs on this. So, uh, you know, do you believe that people can truly be what we understand in terms of psychology self-actualized or have a true sense of their level of self-awareness if they haven't dabbled or experienced what it is to have an altered state? Sure. Well, the question I think can be, um, and I'm quoting now a, a lovely English mystic who wrote during World War One, which is a tough time to be a mystic. And she said, if if you imagine that there's a mountain, and at the top of the mountain you can see the whole world. Mm-hmm. And then the question she said is, how many ways are there up that mountain? And the answer is many 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 ways mm-hmm. so the the question of how does one become self-actualized or healthier or saner or kinder um, or more accepting is that there is a myriad of ways mm-hmm. and that's wonderful um, I've explored psychedelics um, psychedelic research also as um, you and your audience know was illegal for a number of decades. Mm-hmm. So I explored other areas, and those have included education, uh, meditation, gardening, mm-hmm. um, extreme sports, um, the, re- the various religious traditions, all of which have different methodologies for climbing that same mountain. And it's not um, what's nice about that mountain is, as you know from climbing any mountain, is the higher you go, the better the view. Yes. Yes, the view at the top may be the most miraculous, but even climbing up above one's prior level uh, gives you more of a view, more expansive and more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely it does. Well, I'd be interested to know, because you, you talk about this... Um, quite extensively. It's been a a lot of what your research has been based upon, but I would love for you to share with the audience, Jim, how how can and how does psychedelics facilitate problem solving? Well, there there are two levels here. In the the 60s, just as the government was deciding that it didn't want to know any more about these things um, and canceled 60 different research projects on a single day, um, we were working with senior scientists and giving them a um, a reasonable dose of a psychedelic and asking them to work on a problem that they had been unable to solve for at least three months. And these were people who didn't feel good when they weren't being successful. Mm-hmm. And what we found is in the, the groups we worked with that there were 48 problems that they presented and 44 had either solutions or great big steps forward. So what we found is you can use psychedelics uh, if you know what you're doing and you can focus the situation and you have people who deeply care about problems, um, that it can be useful. Mm -hmm. And a couple of groups at the moment um, in other parts of the world are replicating that old study. Uh, One company, in fact, in, in England is actually trying to do it and then sell the the um, opportunity to people uh, as a business. 
that's that's one area. The area that's probably much more interesting and easier at the moment is what people who microdose talk about. Now, a microdose is a tenth or a twentieth of the dose that gives one the psychedelic effect of the colors and the changes and the um, the mystical experiences and the uh, the angels and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, microdose does nothing of that sort. It has um, life is ex- the world is exactly the way you see it. However, with a microdose, you function better. You simply, your systems work better. Your digestion works better. Your sleep habits begin to change. Uh, but people who use it, um, who are creatives, as we can be general, mm-hmm. uh, say they simply are able to be in the creative state more easily and longer. So uh, as one young man said to me, well, I only use a microdose when I have a coding problem. Meaning when he's designing some software, mm-hmm. and another person said, um, I, "I'm in machine design, and when you're designing a machine, one of the problems is a lot of the parts are moving at once. Microdose, I can see and uh, and see the interaction between more of the parts simultaneously, so I have a wider span of attention um, when I'm doing this design." Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of reports we're getting um, is people find who are in the writing business that they that their first drafts are easier and better. So it's not shattering. It's not um, Nobel Prize winning possibilities, but it does seem to help people uh, function more creatively, um, and they um, they report no other major effects. Mm-hmm. Well, two thoughts just simultaneously came to me, which happens all the time. Um, So I was watching one of your YouTube videos, and you were referencing a gentleman who I believe was part of the study. And I think he, by definition, was an architect. And so he was trying to come up with the blueprint for uh, trying to construct a certain house and I just found it fascinating that he was able to, he went outside and he counted foot space for the parking lot in all the dimensions that he saw through being in an altered psychedelic state everything that he conceptualized in that sphere of being was replicated in actuality what what the outcome was for what he produced as a project correct? Right, what he, what he said is he now knew that building. I mean, he actually, in his psychedelic experience, he um, it was a small shopping center that he was asked to build, mm-hmm. and that he could walk around and literally count the parking places. He could look inside at the uh, construction and see the size of the bolts that were used to put the the beams together. It was as if he were able to basically walk around, as you would say, walk around your own home. Mm-hmm. And when he um, he then made a whole lot of sketches and felt it was a very successful event, the client really liked it. So six weeks later, he was asked. He was starting to do the the serious architectural drawings, where everything is you know accurate down to the quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. And what he said is, I didn't use any of my sketches. And we said, How can that be possible? He said, I knew the building. Wow. I just drew what I already knew. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's a good. That is uh, one of the one of the lovely ways. I mean, what's the best way to solve an architectural problem is to see the finished product and then go backwards. Yes. 
Well, the other simultaneous thought that came to me was, you know, I think this is a good segue. So when we talk about the the coupling or the, the usage um, of psychedelics with creativity and creative souls, and I very much am one, and I think I've always been one, and I think through my previous history and, and usage of uh, psychedelics, you know, I, I, I could tell that that was far heightened, it was far accentuated, uh, the poetry that I wrote was off the charts. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Jim, but my understanding as far as drugs go, acid, if we're talking about LSD, it's not, it's not physically addictive, but for somebody who's creative, who really appreciates and sees the benefits of what comes out of the psychedelic experience and how that really takes their, their art or their music or whatever it is that they hone or they're passionate about to that extra different level that otherwise may never be able to be tapped into you know is there a little bit of a an emotional or spiritual addiction that makes you want to continue on 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 that path of of producing the same kind of stuff because it's like wow where else am I going to get this where else am I going to produce this where else am I going to see this how else am I going to tap into this so is there a little bit of concern perhaps for people who have to so-called function within normal society, show up for a nine-to-five, who are parents, uh, who are leaders, and, you know, they've got to be on top of their game for their staff or or whatever the case may be. Is there some concern about really being drawn back into wanting to be ongoingly a part of that reality, knowing the results that, that manifest out of it, but knowing that there's a little bit of a contradiction of existing in one sphere and having one foot in the other? Like, how do you – is there concern, concerns about that? Well, let's let's take it at, at two levels. That higher dose, what the architect had, and mm-hmm. by the way, as far as I know, um, he has never used psychedelics again. Oh. So that's just to notice, mm-hmm. um, and he obviously um, liked it when he used it. Mm-hmm. Now, this was done in an era when psychedelics weren't readily available. Um, I can't say what young architects might be doing today. Um, um, LSD has one peculiar property, as, as all psychedelics do, which is they're, they're anti-addictive. Now, that's at the physical level, which is if you take them often, they have less and less effect. Mm-hmm. So that's just put off that to the side, because that's not really your question. Mm-hmm. Your question is if someone has found something that's incredibly valuable and useful, are they going to want to do it more often? And the answer is that they would probably uh, want to do it when it's appropriate Mm -hmm. and when it's special. And I'm thinking um, some years ago I was um, going to Europe and I had an opportunity between some events that I was being hired to do some time on my own, and I thought I would go to Venice. I've been to Venice a number of times, and I mentioned it to my mother. And my mother said, "You can never go to Venice too often." Mm-hmm. And what she was saying is, "It's a pleasure in your life. It's valuable. You feel good about it. You're not doing it all that often. Don't worry about it." Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side, let's go back to microdosing. People, uh, what we've asked people to do for our research, if they're if they wish to microdose, is they find their own material. I'm in the information business, not in the drug business. 
<laughs> and they microdose every three days mm-hmm. for about a month. Mm-hmm. Why every three days is because that way they don't have the tolerance, meaning that it doesn't wear off. And also what we found with a microdose is people have what they consider two very good days and then is so they can feel normal. Well, they've done this for a month. Um, most of our samples say they've found it very beneficial. And then what happens at the end of the month? Do they then become microdose junkies? Mm-hmm. Well, we simply asked them, what are you doing now that you're not doing this study um, as we've suggested? And the answer in maybe 96% of the cases, maybe higher, is I am continuing to microdose, but much less often, Hmm. only when it might be useful. Let me give you an example of what might be useful. Um, It's a letter from a young man who said, I failed my driving test twice. Now, when you are in parts of the world like California, not being able to drive is um, very, very uh, limiting. Mm-hmm. And your driver's test is high anxiety. And so he said, I microdosed before my third try, and I passed the test. Now, wow. we don't know if microdosing made him um, more relaxed or improved his reflexes slightly, or maybe it was a placebo reaction. But in any case, he felt that was an occasion when he might microdose. Mm-hmm. So it's something that people say, it's useful, and I'm glad I know how to do it. But right. it's neither addictive. Um, it's certainly not as addictive as Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you this too. I, you know, because I, I love your videos, and and I believe it was in it was another YouTube video, and you had illustrated uh, your point. Uh, about memory and problem solving, etc. And you cited a student who had, for whatever the reason, he didn't show up for the initial exam. So when he came back to write the exam, of course, the, the instructor, the prof, whomever, you know, they, they make it a little bit more challenging for you as a little bit of live and learn type uh, consequence. Okay, let, me, let, me, let me take the story from there. Okay. Okay, he's, he's a senior, and it's a... Uh, it's a, bio, it's a um, developmental biology course. He's missed the final because he was ill. Mm-hmm. He goes to his instructor for a makeup final. She says, come to my office. Um, she then says, um, write down and diagram the development of a chicken from a cell to an egg to a chicken. And he's looked at her and said, that's the whole course. She said, well, makeup exams are supposed to be harder. Now, he had, he had been taking a little tiny bit of LSD during the semester, and he had that little tiny bit left, which he had taken before going to this exam. Mm-hmm. And he initially went into despair, because this was an impossible task. Mm-hmm. And then as he closed his eyes and tried to recall parts of the course, what he realized is he could see all of the slides that this professor had used during the course. And this is before PowerPoint, so there weren't an infinite number. Mm -hmm. 
and he realized he could actually go back and forth and look at each of the slides. So with that power, he very quickly, uh, in less than the time she gave him, um, did a write-up of the developmental sequence for the chicken. And, of course, it wasn't difficult for him because he could read in his mind uh, every important diagram and every important uh, you know, topic. So he handed it in, and she looked at him with wonder and, and said, I, you know, this is, this is a, an amazing exam. Um, and, of course, he got an A in the course. Uh-huh. And he, he ends his narrative by saying he then sat and out the window of her office there were beautiful grasses waving <laughs> and he appreciated them deeply. So it's a wonderful um, tale. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he later became a, a research uh, therapist and actually um, is involved in, um, in, the, in this new round of psychedelic research right now. So he, he maintained a career um, for a number of years. He set up a growth center. He did a lot of things in his life. Uh, wow. But that is a wonderful tale, and I, I, I love the image of his yes. seeing the slides and <laughs> overwhelming the professor. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So let me ask you this based on specifically that example and other things you could probably attest to being quite paralleled with that or similar to that. Is there in your research, Jim, is there some kind of connection or correlation between somebody who's in a psychedelic altered state um, mindset with somebody who is predisposed to having a photographic memory? Um, wish I could. Wish I knew. Uh, in that case, you know, this was, uh, a, you know, a beautiful case of, of finding the photographs in your memory. Um, unfortunately, there aren't enough people with photographic memories who would like to be in psychedelic studies that we can really do much of a comparison. <laughs> but the, the notion is that the problem for most of us is not that we don't take in information, but that we don't quite know where we put it. Right. It's a little bit like... Um, where did I put my car keys? Yes. And the answer is one of four different places, but I don't remember which. So, but I but I do recall that I set them down, but I can't find that particular image because if I knew if I could watch myself setting them down, I would know where they were. Mm -hmm. So we all have the the photographs, but people with photographic memories um, have access. And, and also, it has a drawback. Um, I remember um, meeting a journalist in Greece, and he had a photographic memory, which meant anything he'd read, he could not only recall it, he could see it. He could see the page it was on, and if I said, where is you know, um, Hamlet's soliloquy, he'd say, mm, in the edition I used in high school, he was now maybe 50, um, it's on page 48. Wow. And it's halfway down the page. Incredible. Now, what he said is the problem with that is I also remember trivia. Mm -hmm. um, imagine carrying around the news that you have read or heard in the last week. Mm -hmm. with, and, it, and it's as clear as um, reading your marriage vows. That, the, that your brain really isn't distinguishing what's valuable and what's not. 
So there is a dark side to photographic memory, and since I don't have one, I, I'm aware of the dark side, and that feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me also ask you this then, Jim. So, you know, for somebody who is a so-called um, renowned expert in their field, whether we're talking about you or anyone else who falls into that particular sure. category, so, you know, in order to walk your talk or to be seen as credible or reputable, you really need to do your research. And in a lot, a lot of cases, specifically as it pertains to what you do and what you focus on, we're talking about psychedelics. So, you know, to the extent that you would feel comfortable sharing with us, and I don't know if someone's ever asked you this particular question, I imagine they have, but, you know, what's the longest duration of time uh, that you can recall having been in an altered state under the influence of psychedelics in order to, you know, really be able to walk your talk in relaying this information back to people, sharing your experiences with people? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what the question is, but psychedelics being physical, you know, chemicals, yes. they simply last a certain number of hours in the brain. So I guess, I my guess experience I'm, is no different than anyone else's. So I'm not sure that's the question. Uh, my, my question is, you know, in terms of a, a succession of being in an altered state, so whether you're redosing on a continuum for X amount of days. Oh, okay. X, there yeah. is, with psychedelics, again, redosing doesn't work. Okay. Meaning if you people can go on a five-day bender and can be basically drunk for days. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, with psychedelics, you just can't do that. And there was some um, kind of bizarre research um, that the people from Harvard did on themselves after they were fired from Harvard where they tried to stay high, Uh which I think is behind your question. And they would take um, mega doses of psychedelics and try to stay high, and what they found is after a few days they failed. Right. (laughs) So one, one can't stay in the state very long. Our, our physiological system simply um, stops it. Okay. Interesting. It's, I think closer to eating cheesecake. Right. Which is, <laughs> you just can't eat cheesecake for too long or your system suddenly cheesecake revolting. Right. Right. Well, and you lose your appreciation for it. So that's, I think, the importance of moderation, too, especially if it's something that you appreciate and you don't want to put yourself off of something. So, um, you know, for somebody for somebody who has, um, you know, dosed and for somebody who has been in an altered state, do you find it difficult? Because I really talk, generically speaking, too, about vibe attracting tribe. Do you find it difficult to in, interconnect, interrelate, dialogue, interface with people who haven't shared the experience of having uh, at some point in their life been under the influence or, or been dabbling in psychedelic drugs. Like, do you, do you find that it changes yeah. your your social makeup, uh, the way you view things, the way you interpret humor, uh, the way you see, you know, the abstract oh, levels? Totally, of, totally, yeah. totally. Um, and I actually have had a, a lot of experiences. In the last few years, I've actually talked to a lot of people in the media, mm-hmm. and um, they're doing stories. And I have now learned to say, do you have psychedelic experience? This is mainly to journalists. Mm-hmm. And if they say yes, I say that's fine. If they say no, I say that's really good for me to know because it will shift my vocabulary. Right. Because I now know I have to explain 
things in a way that they will understand from not having experienced it. it it's a little bit as if you're talking with someone about being in a wonderful, loving, intensely sexual relationship, mm-hmm. and they say, I'm just really happy to learn about this because uh, I'm celibate. Right. And I've never had a sexual relationship. Well, you're going to end up changing your vocabulary at the, at the very least. Because you're aware that there are some things which you can't explain well, and unless they've had a similar experience, um, they can't understand well. Mm-hmm. And let me bring it down from high sex, is imagine that I have a delicious peach, mm-hmm. and I say to you, this is delicious, and you say, I've never had a peach. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could really do that would work is to offer you some of the peach. Right. Right. Because language is not going to bridge that gap. Exactly. Well, and with the example, not also speak to the same in terms of somebody who's blind from birth who doesn't understand what the color red is? Exactly. And and, um, someone who's lived in a country without war doesn't understand the experience of a refugee. True. True. So so psychedelics are not like a special case. Mm Mm-hmm. Just when someone says to me, um, who say mountain climbs, and why they do that, why they go through that intense physical pain and um, everything else connected to it, and I look at them and I have no idea why they do that, and they look at me and realize there's no way they can explain why it's such a pleasure. Right, right. Do you find through your experiences within your journey... Um, do you find yourself being more isolated do you, by choice? Do you do you feel that you are obviously comfortable in your skin? You're you know introspective, uh, you're methodical, uh, but you're also very feeling and you're very open and exploratory to you know going down whatever path that you choose to go down. Do you do you find as a result of all of those experiences within your being, within your mind, that you know, and because it would be unique for anybody. So regardless of how many people within the populace or the demographic can relate to what it is to be under the influence of psychedelic drugs, everybody's experience of that is different. So do you find because of your experiences that, you know, you thrive better on your own? Well, uh, I think that I'm much more able to be either with or without people, mm-hmm. that I'm less dependent on people for my uh, to validate me mm-hmm. and that may be from psychedelics it may be just from introspection it may be from having lived a while um, it's not an issue and the issue of not being able to communicate with different kinds of people is is as real for me as anyone else um, I find people who voted for the other candidate for president of the United States um, hard for me to grasp what they are, you know, how they could have done that, mm-hmm. and they of me. Right. So there is, the, the ignorance gap is still there. I think the the difference is people, and I'm one of them who've used psychedelics, and you're one of them, um, mm-hmm. it's not a surprise that both of us make some of our living by being communicators, because we somehow um, are more able than we were before to reach across a gap um, 
and, and really go to the other side and see how it is from, from their side. And that, that is really, the, for me, the heart of good communication. As uh, Native Americans say, don't criticize someone until you've walked a mile in their moccasins. Yes, love that. So you've been able to identify in some way with, with their world rather than force them to come into yours. Absolutely. And that, that perhaps, um, well, what I've found is, is I've, I've been a, a management consultant, and I've been a, which means you come in and, and when there's a trouble in a company and people are mad at each other. Um, so I've dealt with an awful lot of meetings where there's been very poor communication. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is that if I also, and I've also worked with groups of um, scientists, researchers who uh, have worked with psychedelics, and those psychedelically um, not naive, and that's a lousy way of saying it, people who use psychedelics tend to be a lot easier to work with in mm-hmm. complex social settings and in work settings because they are less identified with their, with their ego. They are simply better able to participate than other groups. Very true. Very true. I can attest to that. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, so obviously, you know, for a certain portion of what you do vocation-wise, it's important for you to be uh, construed properly, for people to understand you. You know, you are in the field of communication. Uh, you know, it's very important that when you impart your message that people grasp what it is that you're actually talking about. Um, but putting the vocation aspect aside of who your audience is and who you're hoping to resonate with, outside of that, on a personal level, do you really care what people think? about you or whether you are in fact understood or misunderstood as an individual personally in terms of my hurt or upset sometimes but it usually passes pretty quickly when I notice it um, I'm my interest is usually in um, is being very practical I'm, I mean if I have a religion it's probably pragmatism which is I like to do things that work and I like to stop doing things that don't Mm-hmm. And when I'm with other people, I find <coughs> that my genuine interest in how their lives work or what their profession is or what they're most interested in um, is probably the nicest part of the way I am in the world because people love being genuinely uh, cared about. Mm-hmm. And part of my psychedelic research has been that I'm more open to more parts of the world than I was before, mm-hmm. because I'm less I'm less interested in Jim Fadiman than I used to be. Right, I get that. I, I really get that. Um, so, in in reading up on you too, I found it very interesting that you know you cited that for 25 years. A lot of where you're at now, in contrast to where you were, you found yourself that there was, you know, that there was anger, that there was resentment, and you felt that for more than 25 years. But you also indicated that that was eradicated after 48 hours of medicine work. So you talked about not necessarily. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Are you sure this is my biography we're talking about? <laughs> yes, this, this is what this is what I read. And okay, you know, I'll go for it. Yes. So, and it was also cited that you know two years ago, for reasons that you still can't entirely clearly um, figure out, 
what your hair trigger habits of decades had had not returned. So where you felt in your previous state prior to psychedelics having entered the scene um, that you identified as there being 25 years of anger. This is what I've read anyway. So 25 years of anger, that there was frustration, there was resentment. But within the span of 48 hours after dosing, um, that all of a sudden eradicated it, melted away. And you don't – what I read was that you couldn't quite pinpoint what that was. So – in the timing of that having been stated, I'm just wondering if you've come to any further insights, any revelations that might offer a little bit more insight around that. Okay, two things. One is after we're off air, find out where you got that and let me know. Okay. But I'm going to take the position that all that really occurred. Um, what inside of me in my head is saying, I've never done 48 hours of medicine work, so this sounds like some other guy. But let's assume that I had been angry at something for many years okay. and that what I would do if I had taken a psychedelic, I would look at that from a higher position. And very simply, you know, if you see small children fighting with one another, you as an adult can see from a much higher position that what they're fighting over is trivial and that they're going to get over it and it's not important. Mm-hmm. And that's just as true if you're an adult and um, you're angry at your father, um, one of the things you suddenly will find in a psychedelic is the, the, the incredible discovery that no matter how hard you, you work at it, your childhood is not going to change. It's over. And if it's over, you can let it go. And you can decide, am I going to base my life on a childhood that had parts I didn't like or am I going to base my life on the relationships I have now? Mm-hmm. And I've said to people that your, you know, your 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 blood family is your practice family because you get a lot of strange people in your own family. Oh yes. And the people, <laughs> and we all do. Yes. And but we we make a friendship family and a love family and a marriage family and a children family that we create, mm-hmm. and that we don't have to carry with us. Uh, things that didn't work and that hurt us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a I have a very I have a six pound dog who's a rescue, mm-hmm. and with us, he is simply a loving little animal who thinks that the greatest joy you can have is to lick somebody's ear, and that <laughs> gives him the pleasure. Okay. Right. However, because he is a rescue and had some terrible things in his childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a stranger comes, he becomes vicious, mm-hmm. and we really have to hold him back, or he will, in in fear, attack. Mm-hmm. So what we're aware of is he still hasn't gotten over his childhood trauma, but most of his life he doesn't make use of it. Mm-hmm. It just simply is not part of what he does, and I think that's true for for any of us who worked on ourselves. And is it, you know, I definitely see the correlation between childhood trauma and, you know, response to that and triggering. Um, But how much of that is just natural, innate, you know, fight, flight, self-preservation, instinctual type stuff that that takes hold anyway? Well, it is natural. And the question is, how do you become, um, how do you become better than your automatic reactions? Yes. And that's a psychedelic help. Uh, education helps 
being in a good relationship helps. Right. Having a healthy biome with the right bacteria in your stomach helps. Um, the list is endless. <laughs> but psychedelics used therapeutically give people a, a better perspective, a more adult perspective on things that had bothered them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when we talk about flashbacks, you know, you know, for, for mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we can talk a little bit about that and how maybe you can speak to personal experience related to that. Sometimes when people talk about flashbacks, there's a negative connotation towards it because they perhaps had a bad trip. Um, right. You know, what, what does that mean for you personally with your experience? Well, let's just define for the few people who don't know, a flashback is when you have suddenly you're back in the psychedelic experience in some way with the the kind of visual distortions and so forth, and it's hard to function. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, it's not a pleasant state at all, mm-hmm. and it's almost all it's it's actually quite rare, but when people experience it, it's very vivid, and it's almost always when they've either had a a challenging experience, meaning an unpleasant and difficult psychedelic experience, and more especially if that was not allowed to complete itself, not allowed to work itself through. Right. So again, if we we pluck our our mountain climber off the mountain just about when he's feeling he's out of food and his feet are starting to freeze and he's 300 feet from the top. Right. If we pluck him off the mountain at that point so he never gets to the top, um, that's, that's interrupting a difficult experience which could resolve itself beautifully. But mm-hmm. since it doesn't, he will probably always regret being plucked from the mountain at that moment when he could have been successful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a flashback is rare, it is real, and there's not much about it except to treat it as one would a very disturbing memory, mm-hmm. which, again, people have very disturbing memories, and when they flash back to those, irrespective of psychedelics, they usually feel bad. Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate you clarifying that. And unfortunately, Jim, we're at the bottom of the hour, and this always goes way too quickly for my liking. So with maybe just a minute and a half to go, uh, where can people connect with you? Where can people buy your books? Where can people follow you? Well, the book is called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Mm -hmm. and bookstores will order it, and Amazon will have it. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest. Okay. Um, And... At this point, um, I do have um, a Facebook page, and I do have an email, um, and I'm not taking people in as subjects at the moment. And again, I don't ever give anyone any drugs because that's illegal in this country. Mm-hmm. And so let's leave it at that. Okay. Well, maybe one day in our own volition, we cross paths in the tangible sense and we have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? I'm in uh, I'm in Ontario, Canada. Okay, well I'm yes. in California, and as climate change happens, I'll come live with you so that I can have lovely uh, California-like weather. Oh, lovely! And you know what? Based on what it is we're talking about, you can be where you're at. I can be where I'm at. We don't even have to move, but we'll still meet each other in the middle, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the border. Okay. So. Okay. Take care. 
Well, in closing, they say in the psychedelic world that if you get the answer, you should hang up the phone. So on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much, Jim, for your time, for your nuggets. This has been absolutely wonderful. For my listening audience, I want to thank you once again for taking time out of your schedule to join myself and my guest today, Jim Fadiman, here on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Go live every Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern. Uh, look forward to touching base, reconnecting again next week, and I want to thank you for being one of over 200 65,000 Living Fearlessly podcast subscribers means an awful lot to me. And in parting ways here, I just want to wish you a phenomenal weekend, love and gratitude, and continue to live your life fearlessly. All my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.